Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Easter. How good it is to be together like this for the reason that we're together like this. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to take some time this morning to read a lengthy passage of Scripture that talks a lot about what today is all about. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start right at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas, or Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Doubt, belief, these are important perspectives that positions of thought that greatly impact how we live our lives and the trajectory of our lives. Believe in something false and that can lead to, at a minimum, embarrassment, but sometimes it can lead to harm or even great harm. So in that way, doubt can be a good thing. We we don't want to believe in something that's not grounded in truth and reality. I had a conversation last week with uh, a young woman who is attending a very prestigious secular university, and she's a Christian. And she told me this story about how in her class, for whatever reason, one time they started talking about Christianity And at some point, they discussed how Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And they began to laugh, all of them, except for her. We don't want to be gullible, right? A human being rising from the dead? Opposition or controversy around the resurrection is really nothing new. We read in verse 12 of of what I read to you this morning, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
And what Paul writes in this chapter here in 1 Corinthians has both belief and doubt in mind. And he makes it clear that the resurrection is no laughing matter. If you believe in the resurrection, and in fact it did not happen, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, he says, you are, we are most to be pitied. It's all alive. He hasn't risen from the dead. And you've believed in vain. And you know, you could have done something, something else much better this morning than dressing up and coming to church. And even more than that, Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, the problem that we talked about two days ago on Good Friday, the problem of sin still exists. And there is not a solution. We are actually dead in our sins, he says in verse 19, with only hope of approaching God in the afterlife by ourselves with the things that we have done. Not a good place to be. In a world where, as it was then and still today, in many places in our world where there is hostility towards Christianity, beyond intellectual hostility, even sometimes physical and financial, you'd better be right about what you believe. And even more importantly, the stakes are high because if Christianity is true and what it proposes about Jesus and the way of life in Jesus, if that is true, there are eternal, eternal consequences, eternal significance to our decision to either accept or reject Jesus Christ. And the one who is writing this passage of scripture, the Apostle Paul, great leader in the church, was convinced that it was true. And he writes to encourage us to have a convinced faith as well. Hear him this morning as we walk through this passage of scripture. You have reason to believe. Verse one again, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Paul is writing to a group of believers, uh, a community of faith in Corinth, Greece, uh, a community of faith that he helped establish. He went there, preached this, what he calls the gospel. And we've talked about this a lot here at Central Heights. The gospel is a declaration, first of all, a proclamation of what God has done in Jesus Christ. But it's also part of a great story that goes all the way back to the beginning when God created the world and, and created a people and then the story that finds its fulfillment, so much of it in the person of Jesus and, and goes beyond that to what we're living in now, looking forward to a future that it describes to us in the New Testament of the Bible. All of this is, is the gospel, the good news. And Paul says, I, I brought this gospel to you, this message to you. And in a, in a world where there are gonna be contrasting worldviews and ideologies that clash with Christianity, he knows how important it is, not just they received his message, but that they be reminded of it and that they hold fast to it. This gospel, he says, you are being saved by it. Now notice how Paul describes salvation there. We are being saved we are saved from something. 
In one sense, it's already happened. We've been saved from our sin and its consequences, but we are also being saved to something. We are being saved to a relationship with God, a a reorientation of how we live our lives, and, and we are new creations in Christ, and it's this ongoing process. See, sometimes we have this idea that to be saved is something that happened at a particular moment in history. We checked a box, and that's good. That's it. We move on from there, and there's no difference in our lives. And yeah, we may go to a Christmas service or an Easter service, but that's it. I'm saved. I said yes. The better picture, the way to look at it, is that when we say yes to Jesus, whatever that was for the first time, that is a significant moment that started us into something that started us into a dynamic relationship with God, that is an ongoing process that we grow into by understanding the gospel more, by believing the gospel continually, by holding to it day after day, moment after moment, hour after hours. We like to say here, 168 hours of the week. That's salvation. And this salvation, this gospel, this good news is the story all the way from Genesis to Revelation, but it has a pivotal chapter without which the story completely fails. And it is this, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is a priority. This is of first importance, Paul says. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, and maybe you're one of them, you're here today, and maybe, you know, you're here because of your family. They drug you here, sorry. And you struggle with Christianity because maybe it's the sexual ethic of Christianity. You, know, you don't like the boundaries you know, that, that are set within Christianity. Or maybe you struggle with the Bible, um, that there seems to be some discrepancies in Scripture and what it says. Maybe you struggle with some of the stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it seems like God's people are commanded even to destroy another nation. And that, that's, these are all barriers for you in coming to, to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's, it prevents you from getting there. Here's what I would suggest. Paul says this is a first priority. This is a first importance. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, you don't need to struggle with all this stuff anyways. Chuck it. But if he has risen from the dead, if he, in fact, was crucified on a cross, was buried and on the third day rose from the dead, that changes everything. And whatever I struggle with, with some of the ways of Jesus and his apostles as they taught, I need to find a way to figure it out, to go deeper with it, push past some of the, the preconceived ideas. There's, let me tell you, there's more there. It all makes sense as you, as you take time to journey into it because he's risen from the dead. Ultimately, is the question. As far removed as we are today from the actual historical reality of Jesus' life, um, it's pretty difficult 
when you look at the evidence to deny that Jesus existed as a person. That's a given. Some will deny, though, that Jesus suffered as a person. One of the major religions, uh, Islam, just doesn't believe that God could possibly allow his son to suffer. And then there is the question of the resurrection. And I would say, if the possibility of a miracle is a non-starter for you, then the conversation ends here. If you can't open the door and you're thinking at all to the possibility of a miracle, then, then, then we have no place to go. But if you can be open to that, then, then we can go somewhere. And Paul points to the miracle of Scripture. That, that the miracle of God writing through people, inspiring them to write down words that he wanted them to write, pointing to events and the person of Jesus far after their lives, then coming true. This miracle, Paul points to, gives us reason to believe. See, Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the dead according to the scripture. I don't know how many of you have watched the movie Contagion. Um, I'd watched it probably like, I don't know, eight years ago. But when the pandemic hit us, um, I watched it again with my daughter one night when we were only a couple of months into the pandemic. If you haven't seen it, it's about a virus that hits the world and starts to spread and people are dying from it. And as we're watching this movie, my daughter and I you know, are continually looking at each other going, wow, this is so close to what's happening right now. But this was filmed in 2011. That's incredible. I don't know if you had to read the book, uh, George Orwell's 1984, when you went to, to school. But if you, if you read it again today, although he wrote that book in 1948 or 1949, I think it was finished or published, you read it and you go, whoa, there's some stuff in this book that's eerily a reflection of what's going on in our world today. But then you think about Scripture words that were written down hundreds and hundreds of years ago and how they point to Jesus and how he lived, died, rose again according to the scriptures. It's in a whole nother category. Mark Middleberg wrote a book called Choosing Your Faith. He's, he's very, in fact, conservative in his estimate. It says there are close to 50 predictive prophecies and some of them very detailed about the person of Jesus. Let me just give you one. The brutal type of, of death that Jesus died, the crucifixion, did not exist hundreds of years before it. Yet, listen to what's written in Psalm chapter 22, verse 16. It says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And then also it says in verse 18, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Both of these recorded by those who existed at the moment that went down when Jesus was crucified. In Zechariah 12.10, it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, 
They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Middleburg recounts a story of a man who went into his office. He worked in a, in a government, large government office and he printed on a piece of paper um, without reference, Isaiah 53, verse 6, which says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he had just those words written on a sheet of paper, and he went around to different workers in his, uh, on his floor in his, in his office, and he said, simple question, who is this and where does this come from? And without fail... Everyone said, this is Jesus Christ, and this is from the New Testament. Now they got the first part right. This was all about Jesus. But the second part, no, it, it was written, this comes from Isaiah. This is like eight centuries before Jesus. And as you read, if, you, if you've read Isaiah 53 and you, you read through that account, it's it's uncanny how much of what's written there describes what it would have been like for Jesus to be crucified on a cross as the New Testament writers give witness to that event. Which brings us to Paul's next encouragement to believe. Verse 5, eyewitness testimony. And that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, or Caiaphas, as people pronounce it, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. When Paul wrote this, uh, most scholars feel that he wrote this mid-first century. So this is not long after the fact. And he names names. Jesus, James, Peter. And he says, this is not a small sample size. Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Most of them are still alive. It's only been 20 years. What is he saying? You can check this out. Go talk to them. Hear their story. He's alive. See, the thing about history is that you can't, um, you can't examine history in the same way you can do a scientific experiment where you can... You know, take elements and test them again and again. No, history happens, and you can't retest it. And the only way to determine what really happened is very much through eyewitness testimony. So if there's no video footage, as we have today, where everybody's taking pictures with their camera, um, if there's no video footage of a car accident today, or whether you're trying to verify an historical event that happened thousands of years ago, you are reliant on eyewitness testimony. And Paul points us to that. And if you are open to the possibility of miracle, the resurrection becomes logically, not wishfully, it becomes logically compelling. Gary Habermas uh, has spent much of his life studying this one topic, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's written extensively on it. He is the expert in this field. He lists a number of historical facts in his book, The Risen Jesus and Future Hope, that virtually all scholars uh, who study this area, believer, non-believer, Christian, not Christian, they have no disagreement about. And I'll, re I'll, I'll deduce it down to six, and they are these. First of all, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. 
Secondly, the disciples had experiences that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Thirdly, the disciples were thoroughly transformed. You can't deny the the change in them. They were thoroughly transformed, even being willing to die for this belief. Would you be willing to die for a lie? Fourth, the apostolic proclamation of the resurrection began very early when the church was in its infancy. They didn't make this up over time. It was right from the get-go. And here's the last two which Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was a skeptic, but became a Christ follower due to an experience that he believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. And then lastly, Saul, who became Paul, the church persecutor, became a Christian due to an experience that he believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. The Christ-hater becomes Christianity's greatest messenger. Verse 8, Paul says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Perhaps today it has been more emphasized than ever how important it is to get at the truth. We have two countries who are at war right now, and the two countries are presenting a vastly different narrative as to what's going on, the reason for the war, and what's taking place. So how do you figure out what's true and what's accurate? Well, for us, we can talk to people who are eyewitnesses, people who are, who are there in the Ukraine. We've had the ability to do that. And you talk to people who have skin in the game, people that are credible, people that you trust, and you land on a conviction of, of what is true. Jesus, the resurrection, this is a matter of grave importance, life and death, eternal significance, Paul is a credible witness, not only in what he's written, but in who he is and how he lived his life. How can you explain a man who is chasing down Christians to to squash this small movement of a Messiah who's risen from the dead to suddenly become one who's willing to die for this message? If you you look at the life of Paul from this moment of encountering Jesus, the risen Savior, and and the, the abrupt turnaround, how he's beaten for the message, how he gives his life for the message, he is a credible and powerful witness to the reality that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, so Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If the absence of the resurrection means a grim reality for those who are Christians, then the reality of the resurrection opens the door to amazing. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, It not only takes care of our past, it empowers us for the present. Jesus rises from the dead, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and pours out his spirit upon all flesh. For those who are are believers in Christ, they are now empowered by God himself, who takes residence in us. God empowers us for the present, and then he gives us a future 
a hope that we are looking forward to. Jesus is described here as the first fruits. So in agricultural terms, um, take example, these beautiful cherry blossoms. When you see in springtime that they start to bud and, and one flowers, you know that the, it's just a matter of time till the rest of them reach that place. When, when, they, when, when farmers had a crop and, and the, there's the first fruits have begun to ripen, they know that there's another, like there's a whole, it represents a whole crop that is coming. The nation of Israel, this was part of, of, of one of their regular rhythms of festival, the offering of their first fruits to God. Do you know when it took place? It took place on the day after the Sabbath of the Passover. That day is today. Jesus Christ rose on the day of first fruits. And he is a living representation that because he rose, if you are here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God has placed you in him. And as he rose bodily, so also will you. It's just a matter of time. You are going to be clothed with a new body. Paul writes on in 1 Corinthians 15. We won't have time to talk about it this morning. But Paul writes on how we, you know, this body, as amazing as it is, because our bodies that we have right now, I mean, if you read all the science of our bodies, our bodies are incredible. But Paul calls them like, you know, it's nothing compared to what's to come. This is mortal. We're going to put on immortality. All the things that we yearn for, hope for, are going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're going to live in his presence with new bodies in the absence of sin and an unveiled reality of Jesus and his glory. And we will sing a new song. And we will celebrate in eternity with him. That's got to make a difference, doesn't it? Doesn't that have to make a difference as to how we live? Like, can this be true and we stay the same? Can this be true and we live anemic lives? No. Receive the gospel. Believe it. Like, really believe it. Continue in it. Hold fast to it. You have reason to believe. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, I praise you. Oh God, the hope you've given us in Jesus Christ. We are so indebted to you, Lord. And we're so grateful that you would enter into our humanity and become one of us. Take on, Lord, our sin become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, Lord, with a life, a life in the present and a life to look forward to because Jesus rose from the dead. Lord, would you help us? May this story, may it grip us and move us to live like you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.